Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I want you to think a little bit about the boundary that you have between where you live and where your next door neighbour lives. Now, maybe if you're in a flat, that's easy. There's a, it's a wall and they're on one side, you're on the other side. Maybe some of you have got a bit of outside space. If you've got outside space, it makes it a lot more complicated, decided what will the barrier be? Are we going to use a hedge? Are we going to use a fence? Will we uh, build a wall there to separate us? Now, just run this little thought experiment and just see what what you would make of this, right? You go on holiday, you're away for a week or so, you're spending a good time with friends, and then you come home and you see your next-door neighbour has built a bigger wall between your house and their house. What would you think? Maybe you'd be quite happy about it, maybe you'd be a bit disappointed. Would you read anything into it? Would you think, that are they trying to say something? Do they not want to talk to me? Do they not want to see me. There's something powerful, isn't there? There's something symbolic about building a wall. Think about the start, well not the start, but early on in the Cold War when the Berlin Wall was built. That's a hugely symbolic thing where one group of people is saying to another group of people, we don't want to associate with you. We don't want anything to do with you. We don't want to mingle with you. We don't want to talk to you. We don't want to interact with you. We want to be completely separated. That's what building a wall can say. Knocking down a wall, that's also a powerful thing to do, isn't it? When the Berlin Wall was knocked down, that had exactly the opposite effect. It was saying, we do want to be together. We do want to associate. Where we were separate, now we want to be united. We want to be one. We want to be together. Here's the thing. We build walls all the time, not physically, but in our minds. We will meet a person, or maybe it's not someone we've met, maybe it's someone we've known for a long time, but something inside us makes us think, don't really want much to do with you anymore. So we build these walls, mental walls, we don't let them in, we, we, we're reserved, or we, we stop associating with people. And we do the opposite all the time, we knock walls down, we initiate new friendships with people that we didn't know before. We take that step into relationship where we'd been standoffish before. We step in and we say, I'm going to make some new friends. We build walls all the time and we knock walls down all the time. And if I'm honest, the the most common way we do it is we look at how similar people are to ourselves, don't we? We think, oh, I, I get this person. They're like me. They look like me. They think like me. They're into the same things as I'm into. Okay, great. We'll knock the wall down. And Oh, no, they're a bit different. I don't really get what, what they're about or how they think fine walls go up. That's the common human way of doing it. Well, what I'm talking about this morning is how we bring walls down. And bringing down walls that separate people, it's not a minor thing. It's right at the heart of the Christian faith. It's something that flows from what Jesus has done for us. So this is an important thing to think about. And we've done this little series in the book of Ephesians, which is a letter in the New Testament, where I think on week four of this, so uh, there's been a few little messages on it. I'm going to pick up the next bit. 
Here's what I'm going to do, just so you know the direction of travel this morning. In a minute, I'm going to read the passage from the Bible. Then I'm going to spend a little bit of time just explaining it, talking about what some of the ideas in it mean, what it's actually saying. Then I'm going to pick out three implications for our lives. That's where we're going to go. So I don't know if you've brought a Bible with you. If you have and you'd like to follow along, go to Ephesians chapter 2. And if you haven't, don't worry, because the verses should appear on the screen behind me. And I'm going to start reading from verse 11 of Ephesians 2, and I'll go to the end of the chapter. Here's what it says. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. right. Might be a bit confusing when you first hear it. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of background that flows into some of this. So let me just start by explaining what's going on. And a lot of this passage is thinking about two groups of people. So uh, the Jewish people and the Gentile people. The Gentiles, it, it just means those who were not Jewish. And if you read the Old Testament of the Bible, a lot of it's tracking the story of the Jewish people. So this passage is thinking about both groups. So to illustrate it, we're going to have this side of the room, just for today, are going to represent the Jewish people. And this side of the room, you guys get to be the Gentile people Ooh. for today. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure that's a whoopable thing particularly, James, but, um, but I, I appreciate the sentiment. Now, if you go back near the beginning of the book of Genesis. So right at the start of the Bible, we've had a few chapters about ev- how everything with the world has gone wrong. And then God's rescue plan starts with a man called Abraham, or Abram, as he's first introduced to us. As. Now, <coughs> Abram's a guy, God speaks to him. God tells him, I'm going to show you a place and follow me to that place. And God makes some promises to him. Now, which side of the room do we think Abram belongs to? Is he Jew or Gentile? He's a Gentile because at this point in time, there was no such thing as Jews. Jews were the descendants of Jacob. Jacob was Abraham's grandson. So at this point, 
All there is is Gentiles. Everybody's Gentiles. So Abraham, he would love a pulled pork sandwich. He's into all that stuff. He wasn't circumcised when God called him. He's as Gentile as they come. God calls him. God speaks to him. God makes promises to him. And because Abraham believes God, it says that was credited to him as righteousness. So he was made okay with God because he believed what God had said. There's a promise that God made Abraham. And I could read it from Genesis. I'm actually going to read it from the New Testament. So another of these letters to the churches is Galatians. And the promise is referred to that. And I just want to read it from that because of the way it's introduced. So this is Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. It says, And the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So this promise to this Gentile man Abraham was that in him and through his descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Now what I find fascinating about this verse is it says that that was preaching the gospel. Now, I don't know if you've ever preached the gospel, but if you did, your main focus probably wasn't in Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. You probably said something about Jesus coming, dying for our sins, rising again in glory, how we can be forgiven. That is the gospel. But when Paul, who writes this, thinks about the gospel, this promise to Abraham that all the nations are going to be blessed, that's central enough to it that he can say that is the gospel, that that was what was preached to Abraham. Now, let's think about this group of people then, the the Jewish people. So these were the descendants of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. The promise had passed down from Abraham to his son Isaac to his grandson Jacob. Jacob had lots of sons then. Now, by this time in history, like just after Jesus, the ones that had really survived were descended from Jacob's son Judah mainly, uh, with a few others mixed in. But the descendants of Jacob, that's who you are. Now, what do you have? You, you have a particular history that's different from these people over here. So there, there was a time that all these descendants of Jacob, they moved to Egypt, and eventually they were enslaved in Egypt. They were going through a really hard time, and then God rescued them. And if you read the book of Exodus, you'll see these miraculous things that God did to rescue them. He parted the Red Sea. I don't know if you've heard about that story. The actual sea parted and they were able to escape. So they've got this common history. They've also got this land that God promised them and they went and lived in this land. And Sometimes they'd be really obedient to God and sometimes they wouldn't and eventually they had to leave the land and then they came back. So you've got a big story that you guys share. You've also got a covenant. So God made some promises to you. After he brought you out of Egypt, he took Moses up the mountain, and then on the mountain, God appeared, and he made you some promises. He said, you will be my people, and I'll be your God. You'll be my treasured possession on the earth. So you've been called God's covenant people. He also gave you a law. He gave you some ways to live to honour him. Now remember, he's already rescued you. He's already saved you. He's brought you out of Egypt. So he's not saying to you, oh, you need to do these things before I love you. No, no, you're God's love people, but now you've got a law. So you live in a way 
that's a bit distinct from these people over here. They don't live the same way you live. Now, there are bits of it that are moral, the Ten Commandments. Actually, a lot of it is about your identity as a people. So there'll be things that you do that you don't do. So, for instance, all the males on the eighth day, you get circumcised. The food laws, you eat different things to what these people eat. You, you won't eat pork, you won't eat certain kinds of seafood, and you keep different feast days. So what's happening? You're different now, aren't you? You're not like these people. So what happens when you're different? It means there's a barrier. It means you've got your own way of thinking. You've got your own way of thinking. James, would you give us a hand? Because we actually need a barrier, don't we, if we're going to illustrate this properly. So let's put a barrier. No, no. We've got a better barrier than that. Come on. Yes. There we go. Keep going. Let's separate the two halves of the room fully. There we go. You see, you don't even really want to see them, do you? You don't want anything. Let's lean in a bit. Let's get a good old sturdy barrier there. There we go. So you've got the Jews and the Gentiles who are separate. Now, let's, let's pick up the start of what our passage today says then. It says, therefore, now this is speaking to you lot, this is speaking to the Gentiles. Therefore, remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, so you guys are calling them names, by the circumcision, but remember the, the circumcision that you guys have, it's just made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were separated from Christ. Remember that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You've got no hope and you're without God in the world. So all the action, all the knowing God is going on over here, you lot have nothing to do with it. That's the way this is all set up. I wonder how you feel about each other. I wonder what kind of sentiment there is on different sides of the room. Now you guys, you went to Egypt and who was it... <laughs> I'm crossing the barrier, nice. Who, who was it in Egypt that gave you a hard time? Who was it that enslaved you in Egypt? It was Gentiles, wasn't it? They, they were nasty to you. Who was it that carted you away to Babylon and trashed your city, Jerusalem, and knocked down your temple? It was Gentiles, wasn't it? Who is it that's occupied your land now with Roman armies? It's Gentiles, isn't it? So you're suspicious. You, you see these people as enemies who are out to stop you and oppress you. Now, how do you guys feel about these people over here? You probably think, oh, you think you're special, do you? Oh, you think you've got a ticket to go. You think I'm doing it wrong. You, you're so judgmental of me. You, you keep saying that the food I'm eating is wrong and the way I live is wrong and you've got your exclusive club and I'm not a part of it. So you're a bit suspicious of these people as well. So what we're learning about through Ephesians then is how Jesus makes peace between people and God. So if you're around, I think it was, was it last week or a couple of weeks ago, when Jess was looking at the first half of our chapter, Ephesians 2, I just want to pick up a couple of her verses, because she explained it so well. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so no one may boast. Right, that's the key idea. So let's think about you Gentiles. You want to be made right with God. You're far away from God. How do you get to be made right? Do you need to 
come over onto this side and start doing all the distinct stuff? Do you need to keep all these food laws? Do you need to do the circumcision thing? Do you need to get in there? It says no. You're saved by grace. So God freely has chosen to forgive your sins through faith. So you remember Abraham believed God and so was made right with God. So when you put your trust in Jesus, you will be made right with God. You don't need to first come over to this side of the room. This is what verse 13 says about that. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let me just say this. Right? Let's step out of the illustration for a second. Speak to everyone in the room. If you've never responded to this, if you've never put your trust in Jesus to be forgiven and made right with God, let me encourage you and urge you to do it this morning. It's the best thing you can ever do. What about you guys? How, how do you get right with God? Is it through keeping all these rules that you've got? Well, it's not, because none of you have ever managed to keep all the rules that you've got. The law was there. It set a high bar. None of you perfectly lived up to it. So it's like a stone around your neck dragging you down these standards that you can't keep. Actually, it's exactly the same as it was for these people. Though you failed, the blood of Jesus is there for you. He took all your failures on himself at the cross, and his blood, by grace, through faith, draws you near. So verse 17 says, well, there's peace preached to those who are near and to those who are far off. You both have access to God in the same way. There shouldn't be the divide because you get to know God through grace. You get to know God through grace. The blood of Christ covers you all. So the divide comes down. Trillia Newbell said the gospel is race transcending good news for all nations and it creates one new man. So this big barrier that we've got, this dividing wall, that's the law. And what did Christ do away with? The law. We all come to God through grace. What happens to this dividing wall then? It comes down. James, let's, let's take it down. We don't even want to see the thing. Let's get it out the back. That'll do for now. Hey, presto, the dividing wall is gone because of Jesus, and we are now one new person in Christ. Let me read verse 14. He himself is our peace. He's made us both one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Derwin Gray says, vertical reconciliation with God overflows to horizontal reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, producing a new multi-ethnic family called the church. I said I'd spend a bit of time explaining it. I hope I've done that. Let's think about some of the implications of this then for us. And the first one is this. Unity between Christians is a big deal. Unity between Christians is a big deal. We get as much time spent in this chapter on us being reconciled to God as we do on us being reconciled to each other. 
Both are part of the same gospel. If you think about a cross, it's two beams of wood, isn't it? One is vertical, one is horizontal. That illustrates this idea the cross makes us right with God and it makes us right with one another. The church is the family of God. It's bought with the blood of Christ. So here as we think about this congregation and then we widen it to every congregation, every church across the world, we're the family of God bought with the blood of Christ. Our unity matters. And what this means is when someone is difficult or when someone is hard work, we don't want to be dismissive of them. They're part of our family, so we want to embrace them. Walls come down, people drawn in. Or, on the flip side, when someone is a bit dismissive and disrespectful of me, I don't want to put a wall up with them, I want to embrace them. Walls come down, people get drawn in. Even when people have different opinions on what the Bible says, you know, there's all sorts of discussions and things that are debated. I'm not talking about stuff that would mean like you're not talking Christianity, but within that there's so many divides. We don't want to put walls up with people, walls down, people embraced. Again, Trillia Newbell says the gospel abolishes our stupid divides. I love how blunt she is. These divides are stupid and the gospel abolishes them. The other thing I've noticed going on is you get a whole bunch of people stay like, do I even need to bother with the church? Because surely it's easier. I could just stay at home. I can go on the internet. I can find some good teaching. I can listen to my favourite worship songs. I can choose what songs there are every week all by myself. I can meet with God in my bedroom and all will be great. I wonder what you think about that as a way of coming at things. I when I hear people say it, it just strikes me as a tad arrogant, a tad individualistic. Our culture is so individualistic. It's all about me and God. Forget everybody else. Because you might get to listen to some teaching on your own in your bedroom, but who do you get to serve? Who do you get to pray with? Who do you get to encourage? Who do you get to help? Are we just made to be consumers of content, or are we made to be the body of Christ who love and serve one another? And so then what some people do is say, okay, I get it, I get it. I need some fellowship, but I don't like most of the people who go to church. So I'll just do some alternative fellowship with people who I do like. I'll just get some of my friends and we can meet up and we can do some Bible study. We can pray and everything will be great. And what, what we're doing then when we do that is who do we pick for those groups? We pick people just like ourselves, don't we? We pick people who think the way I do, who look like I do, who approach the world the way I do, and we put the barriers back up that the gospel tore down. And we say, no, no, fellowship is only for people like me. And the blood of Christ says, no, there's one new man from all the nations of the earth. Here's the second implication. I used this word earlier in a quote, but I just want to dwell on it. A little bit more. The church is God's multi-ethnic family. Really important. Diversity, and particularly in our passage, ethnic diversity, Jews and Gentiles, is mentioned here. This is not a peripheral thing in the church. Andrew Wilson says the gospel is at stake in the diversity of the church. So as we grow as a site, this has to be the way we grow. We need to grow, not just by adding more people like ourselves, but by reaching out and adding people who are different to ourselves. When you think about outreach, when you strategize how you can reach people, it's so easy, isn't it, to think, 
Who do I know? Who am I connected with? How do I reach people like me? People at the same life stage as me. People who ask the same questions I do. People who have the same interests I do. We always go to how do I reach people like me? Now, it's good to do that. How can I reach people? But spend as much time asking this question. How do I reach people who are not like me? How do I reach people who are part of this community that we're in that aren't like any of us here? How can we broaden our reach because the gospel is at stake and as we grow we want to be drawing people into leadership who are from different backgrounds and when you do that right it means things get done in different ways people approach things differently maybe not the way that you would instinctively do things but the way other people would instinctively do things and that's good Different views on, this is what makes a leader. You know, the way the West thinks about leadership isn't replicated all over the world. Different things are looked for. The way teaching is done, the way pastoring is done, the way music is done, it's different. And we want to embrace different cultures. And let me just say this as well. It's not about being colorblind. Now, I, I hear sometimes people say, oh, what we need is to be colorblind and treat people like their culture and ethnicity doesn't matter. Now, what normally happens when you do that is you still do things the way the majority culture like to do things, and everybody else has to just shut up and fit in with it. That's what tends to happen. No, no, we want to embrace, we want to celebrate, we want to include, and we want to draw in people expressing their true cultural heritage in the worship of the church. You see, if you're one of those people who says, well, I only really want to fellowship with people like me, I'll tell you this, you're not going to like heaven. Because <laughs> around the throne in heaven, you've got people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshipping Jesus. And when we think beyond our walls of the church as well, as believers in Christ, we need to lead the charge against racism in any form. Learn about it, act on it. If, you've got, if you know there's racism in your heart, let me say this to you, you need to repent. You need to repent of that. That's not the way of Christ. And as you do, as you repent, through the cross, there's forgiveness, there's grace. But you need to repent if that's in your heart. Thirdly then, final implication I want to draw out this morning. We need to live out the unity that we have in the church. You know, I speak to a lot of people who've been around different churches and sometimes have got a bit turned off by things. And one of the most common things I hear that put people off churches is cliques is little groups of friends where it's like the walls are down with each other, but the walls are then up for everybody else. So there's no way of breaking in. There's no way anybody else gets to be part of that friendship group. Now, I get it. We all like it, don't we, when we've got those friends that we're comfortable with, who we can openly share with. But that's not Jesus' way. Let me say this to you. As you grow, don't let cliques form. Be generous. Be open and be wide in building relationships with others in the church. Be quick to engage the new person. I know you like to catch up with your mates. Be quick to engage that new person who's walked through the door, especially when it's someone different from yourself. Bear with one another. Pray for one another. Forgive one another. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Live out what it is to be the body of Christ. That's the big thing that stands out for me in today's passage. We are the body of Christ. We've been made one new person, one new people together in Jesus. 
So the challenge to leave you with this morning is to be who you are, to be this body of Christ you've been called to be. You can either live as walls up people or walls down people. You can live where you're guarded, where you're defensive, where you keep people at arm's length, or you can embrace people into the family of the church. Jesus was the ultimate walls down person. Even when we were his enemies, and he would have had every right to keep us at arm's length, he stepped into our world. He came, and he initiated, and he called us his friends. And he did so, we've been talking about the cross, he did so by giving his life.